Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. Hello, everyone. Welcome. I'm Paul Shari. I'm a senior fellow and director of the Technology and National Security Program here at the Center for New American Security. Thank you for joining us for today's discussion about artificial intelligence and the role of confidence building measures. I'm joined today by a very exciting group of panelists, um, Helen Toner, who's the director of strategy at the Center for Security and Emerging Technology. Uh, thank you, Helen. Welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. Uh, Kirsten Vignar. Uh, who is at the UN Institute for Disarmament Research, where she is head of the UNIDIR support team for UN cyber negotiations. Uh, Kirsten, thanks for joining us. And uh, Michael Horowitz, Richard Perry Professor and Director of Perry World House at the University of Pennsylvania. What's up, Paul? Happy to be here. Uh, well, thanks. Thank you all for joining us for this discussion. A um, couple interesting developments on how... Um, People think about AI risks and potential for confidence building measures. Um, most recently this week, a report released by the National Security Commission on AI, a monster, monster report, very comprehensive, um, dedicates a whole chapter to looking at issues surrounding the risks of AI-enabled and autonomous weaponry. Um, I would also be remiss if I didn't mention uh, Mike and I earlier this year released a report on AI risks and confidence building measures um, through CNAS that uh, was funded by a grant from Carnegie Corporation of New York. We're very grateful for their support. Um, we're exploring some of these topics. So um, with that, I'd like to, to dive right in to discussion about some of these concerns. Um, Helen, first question comes to you. The National Security Commission on AI report that just came out this week talks about, quote, mitigating strategic risks associated with AI-enabled weapon systems. Um, what's your take on what some of these risks are of military competition in AI? Yeah, so the report, as you say, is quite uh, comprehensive. So folks can definitely go look there for a, a long list. I think of sort of two big categories of, of types of risks when it comes to um, you know, risks of military competition in AI, especially from a strategic stability point of view. Uh, one of those, which I think is pretty easy to grasp is the, the risk of pro proliferation or the risks of AI enabled you know, weapons of mass destruction, WMD. So the obvious examples here would be, for example, autonomous drones. Um, and a really important dynamic, I think, is going to be whether bigger countries that are spending more on, on military technology, are those, are those countries going to be developing new technologies that are disproportionately going to help smaller actors um, and, and potentially contribute to proliferation? That's one sort of whole category of concerns. A different category of concerns, I think, is related to the pressure that I think militaries face to be trying to move at machine speed if they can. So obviously machines in, in principle can, can work and can sort of quote unquote think faster than humans. And so if there's a, a chance that your adversary is going to be using systems that can go faster than that, that can get inside, you know, get inside your OODA loop as, as people say, um, there's going to be this sort of competitive pressure to, to try and keep up with that. And I think that gets really difficult when you start to think about um, crisis stability, when you're thinking about you know, the lack of escalation thres thresholds when autonomy is involved. Um, it's even more you know, concerning when you think about the, the, the systems that we have today and the way that, that they are really not sort of secure, robust, resilient, interpretable. Um, so especially with 
you know, questions of, of deploying the types of systems that we have uh, access to today, I think those concerns are, you know, sharpened even further. Thanks. I appreciate that. That's a good overview of, of a lot of the risks that um, we might face as we see militaries begin to use more and more AI and autonomous technology. Um, Kirsten, I know you've been very involved in discussions at the UN um, since 2014 on autonomous weapons. What's the current international environment right now for regulation on either autonomous weapons more narrowly or more broadly AI-enabled military technology? Thanks, Paul. Um, I think you know, the short answer, the prospect for hard regulations at the UN or coming out of the multilateral level are slim. But that's across the board on all arms control and disarmament um, issues, not just on autonomy or on AI. Um, first, you know, we're, we're simply not in a geopolitical environment where new legally binding regulations are going to be agreed anytime soon. But secondly, I think it's underappreciated that kind of there's a process issue that's really COVID has really brought to the fore. It, um, COVID has impacted our multilateral um, negotiations in a phenomenally bad way. And that's true for, I think, every sector. Um, but diplomacy and negotiations is, I think, some of the most resistant to adopting online technologies and, and being able to conduct um, their discussions um, in a virtual format. So for over a year now, meetings and discussions at the UN have been postponed, they've been canceled. And while some work has transitioned to informal online consultations, for example, the two cyber negotiations that I support have been regularly meeting in virtual informal uh, meetings since last spring. Um, I'm in New York this week because next week we will have the final negotiation session of one of these negotiations here at the UN, a physical meeting. And there are, that's because there are some member states who insist that physical meetings to negotiate um, to take formal decisions. And that's across the board. That's in the Security Council, that's in the General Assembly, and that's in processes like CCW. So physical negotiations are obviously incredibly hard when the majority of negotiators can't travel. The CCW has, of course, um, and the discussion on lethal autonomous weapons has suffered from this. Late in 2019, we saw the establishment of a mandate for 25 days of discussion on laws between 2020 and 2021. And with COVID, there was a single five-day week of hybrid meetings last September, which some states, true to their positions across um, other UN fora, refused to participate because it was a virtual, um, not fully in-person meeting. It was a hybrid meeting. So the November meetings were canceled, and the session that was scheduled for next week was also canceled. So there's potential dates coming up spring, summer um, to kind of resume the discussions, but the difficulty of gaining consensus, consensus on holding, just holding hybrid meetings is really up in the air. So what does this mean? Lack of substantive progress due to resistance of um, the positions of some states, but also a lack of progress due to the process related delays um, may lead to increased momentum for a like-minded process to ban autonomous weapon systems being taken outside the UN. And the question is really, were that to happen, what important questions would be left on the table unaddressed? And what measures would fill the gap in the normative and CBM framework um, among the most mature AI states who would reject such a process? Thanks. I appreciate that. That's a helpful reality check on some of the, uh, the difficulties of the international diplomatic process. And certainly if states are having trouble agreeing on whether or not to hold a meeting, that's a that's a, a useful you know cold splash of reality on on the prospects for actually kind of really hard limits on technology. Um, 
Mike, I want to turn to your take on the NSCAI report, and then we'll go back to Helen and, and Kirsten for their um, analysis. You know, the NSCAI report dedicated a whole chapter to talk about some of these risks associated with military competition in AI, and then a number of practical recommendations. I should say, as a as a disclosure, I guess that um, you, you and I both were consultants to the NSCAI um, while they were in development. Although I, I, I will personally say I can't really take any credit for like, really the awesome work that the group had done, the commission and the commission staff. Um, but I'm interested, Mike, in your reaction to some of the recommendations that they put forward. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're, uh, I don't think either of us is, is fully unbiased, although frankly, they wrote whatever they wanted at the end of the day uh, after, after asking us what we thought. And, but I think that these recommendations, while they, you know, won't, won't please people in some quarters, uh, actually represent a, a, a responsible and, and realistic swing at, at trying to manage the risks associated with, you know, to strategic stability from advances, advances in AI. And, you know, in particular, the, the focus on, the, you know, the notion of the U.S. becoming a leader in promoting uh, limits on the integration of AI into critical nuclear systems, the suggestion for a dial, you know, di strategic dialogue with Russia and China. I mean, talking on, on the one hand is like kind of easy, but, you know, that's, I think that's, there's something important there. And, you know, and obviously, given the report that, that we wrote, that was published last month, I was very pleased to see the integration of, of some of the, the recommendations we laid out surrounding confidence building measures. You know, I, I think that, you know, I, I'll, only, I'll only speak for myself here. I think I've been, you know, skeptical at times about the prospects for formal arms control in the AI arena, you know, seeing AI as a, as a general purpose technology, you know, it's not like we had arms control for electricity, but that doesn't mean we can't buy down risk in really important ways. And I think you know we can buy down risk in terms of it with transparency measures and, and standard setting you know, rules of the road to try to improve behavior. And I think we can buy down risk in particular usage areas and thinking about something like say an incidents at sea agreement, you know, style uh, agreement for autonomous systems. And I was really pleased to see that the that the National Security Commission on AI report you know picked up you know some of those ideas based on their own research and. And you know, laid out. Uh, I think what would be a very active American approach to trying to decrease the risks that AI poses to strategic stability. And you know, again, not not everybody's going to be happy. You know, with those. You know, with that, the report acknowledges, for example, the the possibility of autonomous weapon systems. That it, it doesn't advocate for a ban on them, as you know, I think some in the NGO community you know would have hoped. You know, but I think certainly if one looks at, uh, you know, the American negotiating position over the years on many of these issues, this in some ways is the furthest that a American government, you know, in, I mean, this, they don't represent the American government, they're, you know, commission, you know, appointed by Congress, but that, but, you know, that, you know, senior leaders like Eric Schmidt and, you know, Bob Work, and, you know, and then there are several people, you know, from the tech industry, people that are going into the, have got, gone into the Biden administration, uh, this is a really good swing at at ways to decrease risk, and and so I, I'm I'm supportive of a lot of what's what's in that you know that chapter on strategic stability in particular. Um, I want to uh, get your take next, Helen. Um, you know, wh what was your thoughts on kind of the NSCA's both their analysis of some of these risks and then their recommendations? 
Yeah, it was super interesting um, to see the final report come out. And I agree with a lot of Mike's analysis. One thing I'll say for anyone who, like me, was initially put off by the 800-some page count, it turns out that a bunch of that is blueprints and appendices. It's something like 200-some pages of the actual chapters, and they have a nice online interface that you can kind of scroll through. So I, you know, I thought I was going to have to strategize and sit down with a whole weekend and figure out how to break it up. It's pretty approachable, actually. I think they did a really nice job, um, but it is very long. Um, one thing I've been struck by also in just some initial conversations with folks, you know, some folks from the NGO community, as Mike mentioned, a few folks from Europe um, this week about their reactions to the report is the interesting tensions between the different chapters, which I think reflect real tensions that, you know, the national security community in the US is facing. So for example, you know, Mike, you just talked about the, the ways that it lays out these strategic risks. There's also a whole chapter, chapter seven about testing evaluation, ver um, validation and verification. Um, and the difficulties there. Uh, but so I was interested, given you know, the existence of those chapters that many of the conversations I've had with folks this week have focused more on uh, things like chapter two, which is really focusing on pushing forward the uh, AI readiness of the Department of Defense at maximum speed. And also some of the, um, the judgments that open chapter four, which are sort of really sort of standing up for the US's ability to build and deploy autonomous systems in battlefield contexts at some point in the future. Basically that I had these conversations with folks that were really saying, wow, this is an extremely pro-autonomous weapons report. DOD is really going full steam ahead, like gosh. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting. Mike clearly disagrees with that take, but I thought it was interesting that, that you know, depending on which chapters you read and how you interpret them, it can come across differently. And I think this also, Paul, um, something I've heard you say plenty of times is, is talking about the two, you know, two big types of risks you can face when deploying new technologies to go too slow or to go too fast. Uh, and so I think this, these tensions are, are reflecting that as well, that you know, the, the National Security Commission uh, in this report, and of course DOD more generally, wanna be saying to competitors and adversaries, we're gonna be, going, we're gonna be you know, going at world pace, we're gonna maintain our superiority, we're not gonna go too slow, while at the same time needing to make sure that they are pacing themselves um, adequately. I think two, two, you know, a couple of dimensions that I found really interesting here are the distinction between uh, laying the digital foundations to be able to use these systems and build these systems, which I think is, is really the focus of chapter two. So that's more about data management. It's about you know, human capital and training and the, you know, the digital systems within the department, which are notoriously uh, somewhat behind the times, one might say, um, versus you know, putting things into operational use on the battlefield, which is just a very, very different question. Um, and then secondly, also distinguishing between uh, these more sort of enterprise potential applications, which I think, you know, you know when, when, when we're talking about, I think the, the, again, chapter two of the report um, talks about bringing in more private sector um, products and, and things like that. And I think if we're talking, you know, HR systems, we're talking these, these back office functions, that makes a ton of sense uh, versus anything that's gonna be really defense specific, might involve killing people really wanting to have, an, you know, far more caution and far more, you know, deliberate process involved there. So I don't know, that was some of the, some of the interesting, you know, thoughts that, that the report prompted, prompted for me. That's great. That's super helpful. And it's always good to know how people, particularly if they're folks coming from outside the defense community, perceive these kinds of things, because obviously these kinds of documents have multiple audiences, right? There are audiences inside the government and defense community that they're trying to message to and in many cases, spur people to action. Their audiences on the Hill. Their audiences, you know, in the broader tech sector, and then of course people internationally. I thought your reaction to the 
the reaction that you were conveying as others had to the autonomous weapons is really interesting in particular, because when I looked at it, there's nothing from my perspective that's new or different. Right. I agree. Yeah. yeah. I was surprised. I sort of looked at it and thought, yeah, you know, of course, this is the things they were going to say. Um, but it was it was a pretty strong reaction that I heard from multiple people this week. So I, I mean, I, that was I mean, not to speculate too much, but my, my, my bet would be that, you know, that maybe reflect may reflect communities that like just like don't believe the U.S. where the U.S. says things like, hey, we're not developing autonomous weapons right now. And so I think, I think there's also a really interesting um, uh Another, you know, a really interesting distinction between something that I think, you know, Eric Schmidt, the chair of the commission has said in, in media interviews this week, and that is also in the report, which is U.S. existing U.S. procedures are adequate to ensure that the U.S. will only field systems that are compliant with, you know, international humanitarian law. That, that is a one statement. It's pretty easy to interpret that statement as saying, we are on the way to doing this. We know how to do this. We have systems that are gonna be rolling out soon, which it's not quite what he's actually saying. What he's saying instead is there are existing checks in the process that are going to stop systems if they're not capable of doing that. Um, but I definitely, yeah, I, I think that statement can be seen as we're going full speed ahead. We have these systems in the pipeline. They're coming through. Our processes are great. Don't worry, we got this, which yeah, I think, um, doesn't always land well for folks who are concerned about the, you know, the impacts of these technologies. Yeah. Uh, I was really um, reading it kind of from an international perspective and talking to people outside of, of um, the United States. I think a lot of people were struck by the tone that it took, um, particularly vis-a-vis -vis Russia and China. Um, it comes out very strong in the chapter four. Um, obviously, I was really personally struck by the tensions that Helen described. I think a lot of people won't won't read the whole document. They'll dip into the chapter they are most you know interested in, and and what makes the commission's work I think so interesting and complex is those tensions that we see between kind of those in some ways competing interests even within the same the same government. And and so I think we do ourselves a bit of a disservice if we only dip into chapter four and talk only about um, the autonomy um, uh, kind of discussion and where it puts us. Um, so I was struck by those tensions as well. Um, but I have to say, I really appreciated in, in chapter four specific that the emphasis that the commissioners put on um, looking ahead to what could be concrete CBMs. Um, and, and Mike, you mentioned some of this. Um, for example, the practical risk mitigation measures, um, the, the automated um, trip wires, the report specifically mentioned nuclear weapons, but of course there's, I think there's some maritime systems that would be really good candidates um, for this in, in, in the short term as well. You know, CBMs come in a variety of kind of flavors and intensities from transparency measures to cooperative measures to stability measures. And with the publication of 3009 in, in what, 2012, um, the US took the lead in these discussions on transparency, right? And being the first meant that the US received a lot of criticism internationally for that directive. But, um, you know, putting it out there in, and in the public domain at the international level, um, was an important transparency measure, just as the 2020 AI principles are as well. And with these docu documents and others, we have really the, the building blocks uh, to work with allies and beyond, because we have to get to the and beyond part as well, on cooperative measures, such as establishing robust um, T&E and B&B um, standards, or such practical measures such as tripwires. 
Thanks. Well, that's that's very helpful again to hear the, the international perspective as well. And um, and certainly don't let's not feel constrained to to only the issues of chapter four. If there's other things you want to leap on or that are not related to the report, you know, um, feel free. You know, I think the one of the things that I think is interesting about the report is um, there are some some specific ideas that they tee up in terms of confidence building measures, as you mentioned, Kirsten, that it's it's you know able to get beyond kind of some of the hand waving of like we should think about ways to mitigate these risks to talk about particular ideas. Um, I want to tee up kind of for the group, you know, the first recommendation they have uh, when it comes to confidence building measures, which they talk about having the U.S. clearly and publicly affirm existing U.S. policy that only humans can authorize the employment of nuclear weapons and then look for similar public commitments from Russia and China. Um, you know, interested in, in your thoughts and reactions to that. Is it a good idea? Are we likely to get anywhere with it? What's your, what's your take? Jump, jump ball for anyone who's interested. I mean, I, I definitely am a, a fan of that recommendation. I think it's it's an absolute no-brainer right now that there's no way we could, you know, maybe, maybe 10, 20, 30 years in the future, this is something that it would make sense to revisit. Maybe, maybe. Um, but right now, it's a complete no-brainer that you don't want to have any of these kinds of systems anywhere near your nuclear C3. Um, and I think that's something that the U.S. could easily affirm. Um, you know, the former director of the... Um, the Joint AI Center at the Pentagon, um, General Shanahan, has said this. Um, but you know, he's he's one person. He's a at, at his rank to have it affirmed more loudly and by more senior personnel. I think would be, you know, clearly a good move. I completely agree with with Helen on that. I mean, Paul, you really hit it on the head. This is confirming existing policy, right? You know, and that should be said loud, said proud, and 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 up the stakes for others to make similar commitments publicly. It's, it's a super um, CBM to make public unilateral declarations and then use that as a way to pressure our friends and allies to, to help develop that normative framework around it as well. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's not just a good idea. You know, I'll, I'll make it um, you know, uniformly positive here, but it's good strategy. I mean, the, the, like, we never like saying that we won't do things. I mean, that, that's just like not something the U.S. like really does all that often. And it's not just General Shanahan, General Rand a couple of years. There's several American general, like prominent American generals have expressed serious concern with the notion of, of sort of AI integration in critical nuclear systems. You know, part of that's about technology risk. I think part of that's about trust in America's existing second strike capabilities. And in that case, you know, wh why would you take the risk? And, and in that case, there's a real opportunity for the U.S. to be a, a leader in this case, which, you know, to Kirsten's point, I think then maybe puts a little bit of pressure, even if it's only a little bit, puts a little bit of pressure on, on other countries to, to maybe make similar statements and help sort of set the standard and, and from a strategy perspective. And then, you know, maybe makes it easier down the road when other countries want stuff the U.S. doesn't want to do. Yeah, what this reminded me of, um, to your point, Mike, about this not being, you know, saying we won't do things is not something that happens here very often. It reminded me of President Nixon, you know, saying that doing the unilateral uh, commitment to get rid of the U.S. offensive biologically weapons program. And that obviously oh, yeah. looks, looks fantastic in retrospect, you know, obviously a good idea. Right, who um, needed bioweapons? You had nuclear <laughs> weapons. There was no point to them anymore. It's a great It's automated easy. nuclear weapons. You yeah. got human nuclear weapons. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I've thought about with this, and maybe this is unfair, but it seems to me like just a bare minimum threshold for when we think about like, you know, sort of things that you're concerned about with AI risk, because it seems like an easy one. And in particular, it seems to me that, you know, if, if we're not able to get other competitor nations to publicly 
in a politically statement and that's not legally binding, that's not a treaty, to just sort of say like, yeah, we agree that, you know, we shouldn't allow machines to make nuclear launch decisions, you know, then, then I don't know how we're going to reach agreement on more difficult challenges. I would hopeful, I would hope that that's a bare minimum that we could get countries to agree upon. Um, it seems like at least a good place to start. Um, other thoughts on things that jumped out at, um, at each of you in terms of the recommendations or some of the risks that the report highlighted that you want to want to highlight? I would just call out one thing, you know, circling back to something um, that I think I think sort of Helen had mentioned in thinking about the, the contrast between some of the chapters. You know, I think that there's something really interesting here about, you know, what competition means and whether we think about competition as, as positive or negative in a way. And the, you know, from a from an international security perspective, international stability perspective, we're, we almost inherently think of competition as a negative thing because you know, competition is what generates arms races, it creates risk, it makes you know, conflict more likely, it can make accidents more likely, you know, whatever, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, but you know, competition when it comes to sort of broader technology development could be about you know, competition for, for economic reasons, for you know, things that are, are not, not, about the use of, not about the use of force. And so I, I think the, you know, part of my read on this report is actually pretty nuanced in the way that it thinks about, in the way that it thinks about competition, because in some ways it, it's pointing out the, you know, not, and I, I don't think they actually explicitly say it this way, but not, not just the need to compete, but the benefits of competing when it comes to AI leadership more broadly, and then trying to buy down what some of those risks could then look like, you know, what, what, are, what are inadvertent consequences of that applied in the military arena specifically? as you're trying to capture sort of broader benefits from AI development for, you know, from the perspective of the report, you know, since it's, a, it's an American focused report from the perspective of American society, America's influence in the world, you know, US technology leadership, et cetera. Helen, we've chatted before about um, sort of confidence building measures, uh, CBMs as we've been calling, if people call them, for those, for those who've maybe not, we've been using the acronym CBMs, confidence building measures, right? Um, that you. You know, we've been chatting before about that in, in pre previous um, discussions and workshops, and you've had a lot of contributions. And I'm interested in, other than the nuclear one, what you see as maybe some of the most fruitful potential confidence-building measures for reducing uh, or mitigating AI risks. Yeah, absolutely. There are a couple that are in the NSCI report that I, I liked. I liked a lot, and I was glad they were included. Um, one of those was, you know, direct military-to-military -military dialogues. Um, so the report, I think, recommended that these kinds of AI stability issues be included in the existing strategic security dialogue with Russia and that a similar type of dialogue be set up with China. I think that's a great idea. I think trying to talk about some of these crisis dynamics and how to, how to manage and mitigate them um, and also talking about intentions in those kinds of fora is, is really, really valuable. Another one in the report um, is, is working towards testing and evaluation standards um, for these settings. Uh, you know, right now it's really not clear how you would go about testing and evaluating a, a machine learning based system because they're just so different from what we have, you know, the, the, the types of autonomy that we have in play at the moment. Um, and then one other that I'll mention uh, that I think was in, in your report, Paul and Mike, um, is, is sort of another unilateral one, which is just about, you know, signaling and stating clearly about the difficulties of these, you know, T&E and B&B problems. And I'm actually interested if, if any of you have a take on why this doesn't get said more 
more loudly. It sort of feels to me like there's this open secret, which is all these machine learning systems that are doing great, you know, they're fantastic at recommending your next Netflix show. Um, they're really good at labeling your photos, but they're absolutely terrible if you're using them in any kind of sensitive setting where the outcome really, really matters. Pretty much everything battlefield related is such a setting. Why is it so difficult for us to say, you know, we're a long way from being able to do this? Is it just that that these, you know, that, that DOD and other militaries want to signal uh, signal competence and signal that they're moving ahead? Or is it that this just hasn't filtered through and, and you know, isn't something that, that senior leaders feel confident enough to say yet? Or, you know, I'm interested in, in anyone's take. Looks like Mike maybe has thoughts. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I expect all of you actually might disagree with me about this, but uh, the, I, I, I think that that is better understood in DOD than is commonly appreciated. And that the, and, and I think you see that revealed through the way the U.S. hasn't deployed a lot of like wild stuff that people would sort of think is unsafe. Like if the best evidence we have for how responsible the U.S. military is being is what it's actually deploying, then I think the, the U.S., that's, that's almost an explicit acknowledgement about the limits and the ability to do, you know, testing and, and validation and verification of, of some of these systems. I mean, I think that the if the question is why it isn't louder, I think that gets to more just the, I think that's almost a question for the media about what, what they, you know, what people wish to sort of report and talk about as much as anything. But I think in the, within the community of people that are thinking about what investment should look like, I think some of these issues are, I would say sort of reasonably, I mean, I mean well understood is probably like putting too fine a point on it. Like, of course there's going to be variation, but I think it's, it's not like people are unaware of the challenge. And I think the, the question becomes more like, do you, do you believe in the way that, essentially, do you believe in the system such that if you can't design effective testing and validation, then something just won't get deployed? And so what I, I think in some ways it's, you know, if you, if you believe in the system, then you think that the Defense Department's likely to behave responsibly about this. If you don't inherently believe in the system, you think that they're likely to to um, sort of take shortcuts and, you know, because you think there are these hard problems that haven't been solved yet, which is true, just to be clear, like the, the, no, not put you back in the substance at all. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. I mean, I guess, I guess the thing that I find a little surprising is that this isn't called out more in things like, you know, to go back to the NSCI report, uh, they say, you know, right, right after one after another, they first say the U.S. has procedures in place that will take care of this. You know, don't worry about it. We're not going to deploy unsafe things. And then they say other countries don't, uh, and we're concerned about that. And why not say, I don't know. I, I feel like there could be more emphasis there on, and therefore, you know, countries that don't have these procedures in place risk putting systems on the battlefield that are going to backfire and blow up in their face and cause massive issues. I guess they sort of say it, but they, I don't know. I feel like it doesn't feel like to me like it, it comes comes out and says it as as plainly as it could be. I mean, yeah, I guess I feel like the report says that, it, but it probably, but it, it could be foregrounded more, I guess. Yeah, I think the, the issue of, of the hype around it, um, I think, Mike, you're, you're probably right. There's a lot of nuanced understanding inside. It doesn't carry very far, though, a lot of times. And, you know, it gets um, um, kind of the nuance, every succession, um, successive repeating of it, the nuance gets more and more lost. I mean, there's a lot of nuance in the commission report. It's 700 odd page long, right? You know, minus the annexes. So it's, it, it, what we people hear is the hype. 
And, and that is something, um, having, I think, a posture that, that says, we believe for these reasons that this is an appropriate use of this technology given its current state, right? And, and that is, that's not saying we're the best, we're the best, we're the best. It's like, this is just a reality check. Um, and, and that goes to that um, uh, tension we often see in, for example, the laws discussion in CCW of this technology is completely revolutionary and it changes everything and you know, on and on and on. Oh, it's completely familiar. We don't need anything new. We don't need to talk about new frameworks. And there's a tension between those two statements. And usually they're said by the same delegation, one right after the next. You know, this is a maze balls, but we don't need to do anything new. And and there, there's like not a lot of calling out on that. And there's a lot of cognitive dissonance that happens when you hear those two statements at the same time. So um, I think more nuance is important um, on these issues. And that's across the board, whether it's AI-enabled weapon systems or AI in other parts of our lives. Um, and for those uh, following up with bingo cards who had maze balls on it, uh, you just, I think you just won. Um, thank you, Kirsten. No, 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 look, I think this is great. I mean, I, I think you, you raised a good point, Helen, which is I consistently see this disconnect between people who work on technical machine learning issues and those in the defense community, how they talk about some of these um, safety, particularly the safety concerns. Um, I hear more concerns about security risks and hacking from the DD side than I even do about the safety issues. But I mean, that was one of the, you know, responses that I, I saw from folks about the report was like, how are you going to use machine learning systems in these ways? It's just not reliable enough. Um, and I don't, I, I mean, I think at the technical level, like the engineers probably understand those, those challenges in DoD, but I think the tone is clearly different and the way that senior leaders talk about it is clearly different. I mean, I think the messaging, my take is at least the messaging from senior leaders in the department and the commission report kind of reflects this is largely like jam your foot on the accelerator. It's like, how do we do more? How do we go faster? You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. T and E, we'll figure that out. Um, let's move forward. I don't know, I'd be interested in others' reactions. Yeah, I think I think that's similar to similar to my take. And I, I just I feel sort of I guess I feel the, the thing I feel confused about is why there isn't a clearer uh, it seems like it would be in the US interest to say more clearly, hey Russia, hey China, we all see these systems aren't ready yet, right? Like we all see that. Um, these technologies are not, you know, not gonna be deployed, not gonna be able to be deployed in a useful, reliable way anytime soon. Um, and I, I think the messaging that is being done is, is a little different from that. So we've got a question um, that's come in through the chat here. Um, what would verification and compliance regime for confirming no AI or machine learning use in um, nuclear decision-making look like? How would you verify AI's role in strategic um, nuclear command and control? That's very different than verifying hardware components or um, or other types of WMD. Um, interested in folks' take on that. How would you implement that in practice? <laughs> Nobody knows. Right, whatever. I'll I mean, <laughs> I, I think the. I mean, I'll, I'll say. I'll say. I'd say two things about this. One is that you know, there's an extent to which you uh, there are probably international benefits to be gained, even if there's not verification. You know, to go back to an example that Helen gave before from the Biological Weapons Convention, there's not a verification regime associated with the Biological Weapons Convention, much to, to I think the chagrin of many, including me. But the and and certainly, I think that is 
maybe made violations more likely at, you know, it's like some point or another, but the, the, you know, creating that strong norm against the use of biological weapons we've come to regard as important. And so one could imagine, uh, you know, some sort of international declaration surrounding nuclear weapons and AI, even if it didn't include verification is actually still having, I think some important, some important value. The, I mean, I think verification there would be extremely, extremely tricky. And, and, and frankly, there's not a ton out there that explores some of the, those things. And I'll, let me toss it to Helen because the, I mean, one of the only things I've read about this is a report that came out from CSET, you know, not, you know, like sort of two weeks ago that, you know, that explores sort of some possibilities for sort of how you could essentially have inspectors plugging into systems to verify sort of what's there or not there. Uh, now, the, the political will to have people do that, you know, different, di di different question. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree that I think that we, we need not assume that we need to have these kinds of verification mechanisms in order for these kinds of declarations to be useful. And at the same time, I think actually, um, I think chapter four of the NSCI report to come back to it yet again, um, actually had as a specific recommendation to pursue technical means to verify compliance with future arms control agreements pertaining to AI enabled and autonomous weapon systems. And I think that this as a technical project, so as you said, CSET um, put out a report about this a couple of weeks ago, which was very much an initial look. You know, I think right now the answer is we don't have great ways to do this. Um, but I think as a technical problem and a, and a really interesting technical challenge for the next, you know, for the coming years, um, the, my understanding is that there seem to be potential things that one could explore here. Um, there's also a, a super interesting paper called um, Structured Transparency that came out recently on a whole category of approaches. And the idea there is that, uh, not to go off on too much of a tangent, but there, uh, when you're using computers to check things, there are ways to use the computers to check the things that don't actually reveal the things to the humans looking at the computers. Um, and so you can think of this sort of as analogous to the way a sniffer dog in an airport sort of lets the, the border agents kind of inspect someone's luggage without actually looking inside of the luggage. Um, so anyone who's interested in this could, could look at this, you know, at the CSET paper on verification, or also look at this, um, this other paper on, on structured transparency, which is looking at some of these technical approaches that let you um, verify properties of a given system without necessarily looking at it. And, and you know, those approaches also have relevance for, for privacy and for other data sharing issues as well. It's sort of a bigger, bigger space that I think is, is really super interesting for the, for the years to come. Kirsten, any thoughts on this issue of verification and, and compliance? Um, I completely um, follow on what, what um, Helen and, and Mike have just said. And, and I think Helen also kind of left it on the right note, four years to come. So we really, we can't start with, we can't make agreements unless they are verifiable or we can't take steps towards risk reduction if it's not verifiable because we will be waiting for years and that's not a good place for us to be. So. Um, I think it's important to work on verification issues and there's some really interesting work going in that direction, but that can't be what holds us back. Um, and again, that brings us back perhaps to confidence building measures and their importance and what can be done um, that's practical now um, while, while we are um, working in the research and scientific domains to get us towards more um, verification type of arrangements. So we've been talking a lot about um, some of the recommendations in the report. I guess I'd be interested in folks' takes on things that you think are significant that the U.S. could be doing either unilaterally or with others to mitigate AI risks um, that maybe weren't included, that would be things that, you know, maybe were left on the cutting floor, 
um, or confidence building measures that might be worth exploring? I mean, uh, let me start by saying in some ways, like while, while I think, you know, Helen and I might disagree about the extent to which the report emphasizes, you know, like appropriately some of like the risks in current AI applications, I think she's certainly right. Like the disagreement is about what the report signals, not whether that's a good idea. So to the extent that the, if, if essentially, if, if like Helen's read is right, then like that's something that was left on the cutting room floor that the U.S. should thus be promoting more because like that would be a good idea because it's true. And I don't think the U.S. would, would be disadvantaged by making clear the, the limits of both existing of, of both sort of testing and, and ver verification. And I mean, look, if to be not to be like too like professory about it, but like to the extent that one is a Klaus Switzerland and believes in the fog of war and sort of friction as inherent in warfare, then the notion of an algorithm that actually will know everything could could have taken and been trained on everything that could possibly happen in a multi-dimensional battlefield, like kind of challenging. It's another bingo win for those who did not have Klauswitz, but Klauswitzian, um, very important, very important. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know, Helen, response? Yeah, I mean, agreed. I think another another element that I'm pretty sure was in one of the chapters of the report, um, but I have not looked at all the recommendations in all of the chapters yet, um, that the U.S. could do, you know, it's 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 pretty straightforward. Is just investing in the research to try and tr overcome these problems, um, and to the extent possible, collaborating with with allies and partners, even to the extent possible, collaborating with competitors and, and adversaries. Um, you know, the go-to example here is um, the uh, wow. Now the words are failing me. In the Cold War, the U.S. handing over technology that um, secured nuclear weapons and made it possible to. Um, anyone know the, the name of the thing I'm talking about? It's totally slipping my mind. Permissive action links. Is exactly. That Thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. The U.S. developed this technology that let you um, secure who was going to be able to make use of a nuclear weapon, and then they just handed that to the Soviets because it was obviously in everyone's you know best interest for for uh, you know rogue Soviet operators not to be able to use their um, their nukes. So uh, I think there are potentially analogous you know advances that could be made in how do we um, how do we build AI and machine learning systems that are more robust and reliable? And certainly making sure that our allies and partners have access to as much of that work as, as we can and you know, drawing on their best scientists and researchers as well. Um, and then you know, depending on the specifics, I guess, um, also trying to, trying to make that available to, to competitors and adversaries. We've got a question um, coming in from the group about explainability, a topic that comes up quite a bit um, in machine learning and particularly has relevance in, in really any sensitive application, but certainly in you know, national security ones. Um, interested in folks take on you know, how significant explainability is um, when we think about some of these applications. I mean, I can jump in to say very significant. Um, I mean, and the thing to understand here is, is uh, uh, essentially the way that, you know, these sort of cutting edge machine learning systems work, these, you know, deep learning systems in particular, or deep neural networks, it's not that we don't know how they work kind of mathematically. It's that if you look at how they work mathematically, it's sort of millions or even billions of numbers that get multiplied together in specific ways. Um, and so we can look at those individual numbers and that doesn't actually tell us you know, what is going on for this system? Why did it, you know, and you can, you can think of this both in terms of autonomous systems. So, you know, an autonomous system goes and does something and you want to look afterwards, why did it do that? 
Or you can think of it in terms as well of decision support systems. So, you know, maybe a pilot has a heads up display and it tells that makes some recommendation to them for what to do next, or, you know, tells them that it's identified something in, in the surroundings. And can the pilot understand how did the system, why, why does the system think that, you know, should, should the pilot believe it or should, it, should, they, should they, you know, trust their own judgment? Um, and, you know, again, the short answer here is basically, we currently have no good ways to set up these, these cutting edge deep learning systems such that a human can look at them and really get what, what was going on. This is a, an ongoing area of research. There's some super cool work that's come out, um, you know, even in the, in the past month or two, um, but it's a long way from being deployable and useful and reliable. I want to um, follow up on the issue that we talked about earlier about sort of technology risk and maturity of the technology. We talked about in the context of kind of signaling um, and how the U.S. should message this. But I'd be interested in, in uh, everyone's take on sort of, you know, internal to even just how the United States approaches AI machine learning technology. Do you feel comfortable with the processes in place to ensure that the systems are mature and, and what's coming out is reliable and trustworthy? Uh, do you think there's work to be done there? I think there's certainly work to be done there, but I, I would say, you know, as, as an earlier answer suggested, I'd like on balance, I sort of, I, I guess I sort of, I, I guess the way I would say this is I certainly believe in how the U.S. is doing it more than my understanding of how anyone else is doing it. And and uh, that actually relates back to the 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 explainability point that, that Helen just made, which I agree with entirely. I, I, I would just add that I actually think explainability is an important thing here since the from a, a technology adoption perspective, if if senior leaders and the operators that have to employ these systems don't understand how they work uh, and can't be persuaded that they can understand how they work because the systems aren't explainable, that makes them less likely to be used anyways. And, and so I actually think solving maybe solving, mitigating, addressing, whatever, the sort of the explainability issue is, is part of what the pathway forward is to safe and reliable uses of AI for the, for the Department of Defense, because that's what will make it easier, uh, that's what will make it easier to explain to broader sets of both the senior leader and operator communities of what, what these capabilities are and what the risks are in ways that are accessible to them, which makes them more likely to behave responsibly. That essentially, if you want to decrease the, say, you know, if you're worried about automation bias and people thinking about sort of an algorithm as like magic pixie dust, that then they don't, you know, they don't realize it's not like a calculator. The explainability and thus the ability to more clearly articulate risks based on that and, and, and what failure modes might look like could thus make safe and reliable adoption easier as well. Kristen, Helen? I was, I was kind of just thinking if there's any lesson that we could take from the cyber negotiations that have been underway for, you know, 15 years in the UN on digital technologies. And, and you know, you mentioned signaling. Um, I, I asked myself, you know, if, rather than kind of looking for there to be a new international arrangements and new agreements and things, you know, let's really look at the norms and principles, the CBMs, the legal regimes that we've already agreed on or states have already agreed on, on international peace and security and digital technologies and see where we can use those, you know, to get a leg up. Um, and, and particularly, I think that includes article 36, 
um, you know, weapons reviews. And now that's weapons, means, and methods, and really pushing forward on the means and methods part, I think is it helps us with signaling. Um, and we can loop that back to TNE and BNB. Um, the closer work today with the technical community, more investment with the research community are is really going to help policymakers understand what would be the bar for TNE and BNB um, for AI-enabled means and methods, not just for weapons, but the means and methods. And that would um, probably be an important signaling function in the international community as well. And do you want to maybe just briefly describe, uh, what, explain to people what Article 36 reviews are, what that means? Some well, folks I think I probably, know, but maybe not everybody on the call. Um, Article 36 of Additional Protocol 2 of the Geneva Conventions, um, where states who have um, signed up to the protocol, please correct me if I'm wrong at any point, Paul, um, I, uh, go through let weapons reviews to test and ensure the legality of their weapons. But we talk about them as weapon reviews. But if you go and look at the actual, the actual language, it talks about weapons, means, or methods of warfare. And there's particular challenges when we talk about digital technologies and Article 36 reviews, um, which are not transparent processes, obviously. And are there particular challenges with digital technologies? And particularly when we look, talk about learning systems, you know, testing and, and going through an Article 36 review with a, with a system that may evolve on the battlefield. Um, brings up particular challenges. And these are, I think, um, people have been thinking about this, um, but there's not a lot, um, I don't think there's a lot of reinsurance coming yet, partially because we don't have the technical um, side of the house in order yet. And it's still a lot of open research questions, but as Helen mentioned, a lot of interesting progress happening there too. So we've got um, another great question coming in from the group um, that I'm just gonna read a lot to folks. So. Have, and this is, a, this is a common question that I hear. So I really like, um, thanks to, to someone for submitting this. Have uh, the speakers seen much evidence of similar policy debates in Beijing or Moscow around these science, science topics? Um, the person notes neither she nor Putin have an equivalent commission offering outside and public advice, but are there policymakers or experts in China and Russia who are calling for their governments to explore confidence building measures and to mitigate the risks of military AI. Uh, what's your take on what might be going on, perhaps even behind the scenes uh, in other capitals? I've seen, I've seen a little of this in, in China. Paul, I'd actually be interested in, in your take. I'm pretty sure you would have interesting stuff to add here as well. Um, I, I think it's always difficult for you know, Chinese representatives to, you know, they're often more concerned about speaking out of turn um, at international events than, than their, um, their perhaps American counterparts. Um, the, the, the event where I've seen sort of most discussion of this was an event um, at the National University of Defense Technology in Changsha um, in 2018, which was a mostly Chinese language event. Um, and was, you know, most of the participants were, were Chinese and there were, many different presentations about kind of AI and global security issues. And maybe two or three of them touched on these kinds of stability issues and made kinds of, you know, recommendations along these lines. Um, so that was, you know, that was a place where I, I, I felt like I got to get a little bit of a peek into more of a domestic discussion. Um, and these issues were, were on the table. And I was, I was glad to see that, though, you know, weren't as central and certainly not as, you know, public and um, splashy as the, the NSCI report. 
Yeah, I mean, I would certainly agree. I think there's, there's obviously a big difference in terms of public messaging, and there's just different audiences, right? I mean, uh, Russia and China don't need to worry about some of the domestic messaging and audiences that folks do here in the United States. Um, I would say that I've been a part of, you know, track two dialogues with Chinese military AI experts over the last, I guess, year and a half, going on almost two years now. Um, and I found much more similarities, the differences in how Chinese military experts studying AI talk about these issues, very similar to how folks in the U.S. do. There's a general skepticism of, you know, some kind of legally binding measure that might tie your hands in a competition. But um, I think a strong awareness of the risks of the technology, the limitations of the technology. Um, I think one important asymmetry is, you know, the legal and ethical issues I found just have less salience when talking to um, folks coming from China that, whereas when talking to folks in the United States or in Europe, where the things that people might come with first is, well, what about the law? What about these ethical concerns? That's not what's foregrounded um, with Chinese experts, but they are deeply concerned about retaining human control over the technology. Um, and so well, there's, I'll often hear some people in the U.S. say things like, well, you know, our adversaries don't share our morals and our values, and so they would be unconstrained. You know, I think like the first part of that thing might be true that they might have different different moral and ethical perspectives, clearly on, on a number of issues, um, particularly with the, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, but when it comes to, you know, the constraints, there are other practical constraints about militaries wanting to have weapons that are controllable that, that also exist in other systems as well. Um, and certainly in authoritarian systems, there is, you know, a, a real strong desire for a, a strong and tight degree of control by the political leadership over the military forces and what they're doing. Um, but I think, you know, these kinds of, you know, there's also, I mean, it's worth just mentioning here, uh, and I think most experts who track these issues are well aware of it, just a huge asymmetry of knowledge between the U.S. and, say, China, where there's a lot more understanding, I think, that people have in China about what's going on here than vice versa, and, um, you know, more work to understand what's, you know, how other experts should think about it is valuable. Uh, we are coming up on the end of time, and I did not mean to filibuster there at the end. Uh, let me turn to each of you to give me 30 seconds to jump in with any parting thoughts. Uh, Kirsten, uh, you're up first. Uh, I guess my parting thought is, while I am a multilateralist at heart, and I believe in multilateral, the importance of multilateral discussions, um, we need much more engagement from a multi-stakeholder community, not just states, and particularly technical communities. Um, helping us to understand um, how to manage risks so in order that we can get the benefits of AI-enabled systems. Thanks. Mike? Sure. Uh, I think there's, I think uh, there are a lot of opportunities for the U.S. to be a leader, both in AI, which I think would be good from an American economic and national security perspective, and in, in AI safety and in decreasing the risk risks to international security from, from more dangerous uses of AI, you know, miscalculation, inadvertent escalation, et cetera. I mean, there's a lot of precedent for this. I mean, not, I, I mean, as, as you know, I think the better analogy for AI is something like a general purpose technology. And so the right era to be thinking about in general is more like late 19th, early 20th century. But if you, you know, think about the Cold War broadly, the US simultaneously promoted varieties of arms control and confidence building measures while pursuing, you know, technical, you know, economic and, and, and military leadership, you know, it's not, it doesn't need to be one or the other. 
And, and that I think is, is in the report, maybe could be, could have been more, could have been clearer in the report, uh, but it's something that I think is going to be really important moving forward that, you know, we, we can in fact walk and chew gum on this at the same time. Thanks. And Helen, you get the last word. Sure. I mean, I think Kristen and Mike uh, said it very well, maybe to try and combine Kristen's note about, you know, the need for engagement from technical experts and Mike's on the U.S. leading on some of these sort of safety and, and standards and testing issues. Um, one thing we didn't get time to talk about today is the, you know, the, the NIST process that's getting started on um, building a framework and building, trying to build some, some standards for uh, robustness and reliability and interpretability, privacy. Um, and so I'll just say that I'm excited about that process. Um, I think we, we're going to need some really great minds to get involved with it, um, to get it to you know, go as far as it can. But I think that's, that's another thing to watch. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you all for joining us. Thank you for your insights. Um, and thanks to um, everyone who was here uh, for this discussion. And um, thank you. Thank you all. Take care. Have a good, uh, have a good day. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.